Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast, where we remember a time when stacks of cards were held together with rubber bands and Mickey Mantles were put in bike spokes. We hope you will enjoy and reminisce as you come along with us as we tell stories about the baseball cards from the Golden Age of Baseball. We will examine the state of the vintage baseball card market and talk to some of the greatest collectors in the hobby. You won't be hearing us talk about any chrome or shiny cards here. Now, to take you on this retrospective journey, here's your host, direct from the shallow end of the gene pool, my son, Mike Moynihan. Yo, and hello everybody. Mike here, Golden Age of Cardboard. I know I missed last week. I know. I apologize. Look, life happens. Uh, I wish I could be so disciplined that every week I can get an episode out. Apologies. There will not be an episode next week, I can guarantee you, because it's spring break uh, for my kids and stuff back home from college. And so I'm going to be doing stuff with them and my wife's off and all that. So it's going to be just a fun week of Hopefully me playing some golf. It's supposed to be nicer weather here next week, like in the 70s. And spring is getting here. Unfortunately, there's spring, but there's, you know, the more I see all of this stuff between the owners and the players, it just irks me even more. I just get my my blood starts boiling because I don't understand it. And it feels like they're so far apart. And who knows when the season's going to start. I actually am guessing... Uh, around July 4th is when I think they're actually going to finally start the season, which is depressing, by the way, if I'm anywhere close to accurate in that assessment. But it's a shame that they can't get this stuff worked out. Apparently, I heard last night they're getting rid of the shift, like you can't do the shift anymore. So I guess Joey Gallo is going to hit 400. Uh, we'll see. Um, anyway, I have a great episode today with very little structure behind it because I've never talked to this person before. Uh, like literally uh, I met him 10 minutes ago when we got on the live stream. So on the stream yard. So I'm excited to talk to him because I've been a huge follower of his channel. I just love his style and what he does on YouTube. And I'm just going to bring him on now and we'll start talking and you guys can enjoy it along with me. And it's Chris Sewell. Chris, what's up? How's it going, man? Baseball collector, investor, dealer in that order, right? Well, yeah, exactly. Baseball card collector, investor, dealer in that order. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I, and I'm baseball collector, so that makes me I, – I always get mad when people call me baseball card collector because I'm like, okay. no, I collect more than cards, you know. But yeah. uh, so you're like, no, it's baseball card. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 when I started the channel, I wish I had said – I'd called it sports card because – you know, back when, when, when I collected baseball cards sort of meant all sports cards. So that's sort of how I, I thought of it. But a lot of people think I, I only do baseball cards, but I actually do all, all those sports. Yeah. And, you know, I've been a follower of your channel essentially since the beginning. Oh, cool. And being completely transparent, when I first watched you, I was like, who is this guy? You know, <laughs> uh, and your style on videos is... I love it. The simplicity of it. At first, I, I can't say I was a big fan of your style. And then it really grew on me over time as I kept watching you do videos. I was like, 
he's just matter of fact. He just tells it. He just talks. And uh, it's very soothing, actually, now. And what got you going into YouTube? What what started you down that path? You've been a collector yeah. forever. So. Yeah, well, well, uh, th thanks for that. I appreciate it. Um, no, I'm, I'm a lifer, life lifer collector. Um, recently, we, uh, my wife and I moved to, to Europe. So I'm actually in the Netherlands right now. Um, and I just, I was here and I just missed, missed the card hobby. I mean, I was still flying back uh, every now and then to, to go to shows and things. Um, and I still had like my eBay account running, but I, I wasn't involved day to day. Like I, like I, like I had always been for the last, you know, the 10 years prior. And I just was looking for something to, to stay connected to the hobby. And, um, I had, I had like a, my, uh, my sister's husband, he, he, he watched like a magic, the gathering channel and he, he showed it to me and I was like, oh, I could do this with, with baseball, you know, with sports cards. And I just started, started trying it and, and it just sort of snowballed quickly. And now it's like, now it's like, you know, one of the, one of the, the main things in my life. So it's, it's very cool. Yeah. I mean, you've grown in just under two years from zero to 46,000 subscribers. I mean, you're one of the largest sports card channels out there. Did you ever yeah. think that would be the case? No. no. Well, I, I didn't really have a sense for uh, like what sort of sports card channels were out there beforehand. So uh, I, I had no idea these numbers. I had no idea you, there were even 46,000 people who would be interested in watching uh, a sports card YouTube channel. So that, 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 that's been like so, so far beyond whatever I was expecting. Yeah, and for the three or four people that might be watching this and or listening to it that aren't familiar with your work on YouTube, uh, obviously it's Baseball Card Collector Investor Dealer. That's your name of your channel. And yeah. some segments that I love you doing. I love you breaking down the collections that you buy with your partner uh, or on your own. Sometimes you do them on your own. But uh, breaking down the math of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is first of all, kudos to you for being that transparent about it. A lot of guys just keep all that stuff so close to the vest and I've never understood it. Like if somebody asked me what I paid for a card, I tell them because it's not like you can't go find it. <laughs> you know, it's not, yeah. if I say I bought it on eBay, here's the car, you know, here's the card. You're, you can figure it out if you want, or I could just make it easy on you. I don't care. Right, right, right. You know? And but the, the way your transparency is, was that something you just said, I'm just going to be that way and, and talk through it all the time or what? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm sort of like you. I, I always uh, was transparent and, and, you know, in all, all deals. And I found most people in the hobby are, but there, there's certainly plenty who aren't. But um, I never really understood. I, I found also found like very honest people who were not transparent. And I, I would be like, why, why aren't you just you know, transparent, because that, that'll, that'll help clear up a lot of things. But there's just sort of like this natural uh, feeling in the hobby that you sort of hide your numbers and you don't tell the, the, the person how much you, you plan to make off their, their cards. And you, you know, you don't, you don't share that. I never really understood it. Because like, like I said, a lot of my dealer friends are very, very honest, fair people. But someone would come up to them and say, "Hey, you know, buy your collection. And they just, they just throw out a number and not, not give any more information. And you could tell the seller was not comfortable with the number, even though the number was fair, but that's because the number, the seller didn't really know. And so I always, I always kind of questioned like, why don't you just explain it to them in, in full detail and everybody's cool with it. So I, yeah, it was sort of always a, a mentality I had and it just sort of worked on the channel. Th those, those videos really 
are the, the videos that sort of took my channel to a new level. Cause, yeah, because they're really great. It's cool to see. Most of us can't buy collections like that, so it's living yeah. vicariously through someone else that <laughs> well, has the ability to I'm, do I'm that. I'm lucky to have a, a, a very wealthy partner who... Uh, <laughs> you can, yeah. And I love how you break down the time you spend on them and all of that because it really gives someone who might be interested in buying a collection of cards, like, look, it's more than just the money, right? It's yeah, yeah. invest countless hours, whatever the number of hours to sort and package and all that stuff. Right. Oh, but yeah, big time. And I'm sure you've, you've experienced that yourself. Like it's not just, you buy a collection for a hundred dollars and sell it for 200. That that's not the formula. Like how much, how long did it take you to, to sell it is, is actually more important than the, the end, uh, the end profit number. When most people will just talk in terms of the end profit number, but they don't, they don't factor in the time and su super important. But the reality like, is in our, to make a living at doing it. Yeah. But in our hobby today, I think there is this quick buck mentality that people think, I, I mean, I was at the Dallas card show this past weekend and yeah. I, I saw one of my buddies would buy a card and then 30 minutes later, he'd have it sold for a profit. You know, I know. <laughs> it's like, I, it's, that's never been, I, it's amazing. Right. So I've, yeah. I've never, that's never been part of my strategy. I mean, obviously if I could, if I could, a card like that i would but yeah that's never been part of my my deal but that yeah. is amazing yeah i know what you mean yeah it's not a criticism of him it no, was just no, like, no it's, huh, that's <laughs> it's, it's impressive if nothing if nothing else um and you know it's when you buy these collections you're you're transparent about it. i think some collectors maybe or or just hobby people they don't want to somebody to tell them they got screwed like if you disclose a price and you probably you maybe overpaid. Like some people aren't savvy enough with prices to feel like you know I'm like uh, a card you I paid up for it because of these reasons. They they either can't articulate that or yeah. they're uncomfortable and they don't want somebody in the comments to go and you're such a sucker, you know, which is which never happens by the way. So I don't know why people are afraid of it because it's not. I, like I was terrified that that was going to happen when I started, when I first started doing that. So that that's, it's interesting you say that. I was terrified that I was going to post a video. You know, I bought these cards from this guy and I paid, you know, $500 and, and, and there were just going to be comments of like, oh man, you ripped that guy off or the, or the opposite. Oh, you way overpaid. You're a dummy. And there, and there just, there was very, very, very little of that. The occasional, yeah. the occasional, I was, um, I've been very impressed with, with, that. I was expecting a lot more hater haters toward a comments throughout, but there hasn't been that much. Yeah, the community is largely filled with great people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have the the one percent douchebags that kind of make it look bad for everybody. I used to get my feelings hurt a lot with comments or however many thumbs down I got on a video, and I just resigned myself to the fact that I'm not going to change those per people no matter what. So just let it. It is what it is. You know, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. That, that was. Yeah, I was gonna say you, 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 you've been doing it a lot longer than I have, so you, you've probably experienced it or, or been able to get past it a lot before I did. It took me a while to, yeah, to not take that stuff to heart at first. Yeah, and some of some of my wounds from people being uh, scathing is self-inflicted. I do admit, but because <laughs> I'll, I'd say some inflammatory things at times. But and you are a Cowboys fan, so that, that helps too. And you're, a, it is fun. We did not plan this, guys. That <laughs> no, I'm wearing no, Cowboys. 
he's wearing Washington football team. Uh, I'm still, I'm always going to call on the Redskins. I don't know. Yeah, that's I, how I remember them too. I cannot, but l- let's get into vintage a little bit since that's what this podcast is about. Yeah, of course. Uh, vintage baseball. I, you've been dealing in vintage baseball a long time. I love, you know, you showing in many different ways you talk about vintage baseball what do you yeah. what do you love about vintage baseball why is it something that's near and dear to your heart uh it's a uh, loaded quite uh, it's a tough question i mean I, I would say it's just sort of a mix of everything it's you know it's history it's uh it's it's art it's like a you know piece of american history it, it, it's it's an investment it's like all these things combined into one. And, and that's really, really cool. You know, I, when I, when I started, and I imagine you were probably the same when I started collecting, I started collecting in the late eighties and I just collected the, the modern cards of the era. Um, as I think most people do when they, when they enter the hobby, but then as, as long, the longer you stay in it, you sort of gravitate towards vintage. Cause you just sort of gain a respect for it and an appreciation for it. And that, that definitely happened to me. I, is that sort of what happened to you as well? Just 100%. Uh, yeah, in the '80s, I collected the current players, and yeah. then I think it's both a. I, I always wanted to have Mickey Mantle cards or whatever. I just couldn't afford them as a kid, you know. And yeah, so, yeah. right, you, you also get to a point. Uh, both appreciating the game, your love of the game grows over time, and then, oh, I have some more disposable income to be able to buy some of those cards I could never afford as a kid. Yeah. Hence, hence the reason why I think vintage will always have a place in the hobby. I don't, people always ask me, Mike, do you think the further we get away from Mickey Mantle's era, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, that as, as the guy, people who saw those people that saw them play are now in their seventies and eighties, as they die off, will there be a less demand for those types of cards? And I'm like, no, because I still want Babe Ruth cards and Lou Gehrig and and I've never saw any of them play. I want Clemente and, you know, I never saw him play. Uh, so, yeah, there's always going to be a demand for it because people, as you mature in the hobby and you kind of graduate, I, I call it, you know, graduating from current <laughs> players. So it's actually yeah. a great right way to put it. Yeah. You like go, okay, I'm ready for a master's class in the hobby. And it's always, and then vintage does that. It gives you that master's class and there's a sharp learning curve, right? You can't just dive into vintage. You're, you're liable to get completely screwed and uh, either by paying, overpaying, buying trim cards, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you buy a lot of raw vintage, I know, but do you prefer, first of all, what's your preferred kind of grading company if, if you were to use them and, Uh, I know you'd probably prefer to buy slab vintage. It's just easier to understand. Right. Or no. Uh, Well, I mean, uh, yeah, buying, buying slabs is always easiest in terms of determining the value and it's easiest to to sell real fast. Um, But I, I actually, I actually love buying bulky ungraded. That's like sort of my favorite thing is like, you, you, you know, someone's just got, a pile of late 60, you know, a 300, a 300, a 300, a three row box of just late sixties cards, commons and stars, all mixed grade. And, you know, just buy the whole box, take it home, sort it in front of the, the TV for an hour. That's like, that's like my, that's like what I want to do with the, you know, a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. What's so your I, preferred I, grade? Sorry. No, Go ahead. No, 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 that was, that was it. Yeah. 
your uh, preferred graded grading company to use? Uh, well, for vintage, I mean, I'm, I'm mainly a reseller, so it's PSA by, by a mile. Um, SGC is definitely closing the gap with vintage. Um, they're, I mean, just being much cheaper, and, and I think the slabs look great, and the resale value is not there, but it's it's closing it's closing the gap. I would say. <laughs> yeah, we've done a lot of research. Ty uh, and I, Ty's another member of the Bench Clear team, and he yeah. he does a lot of research stuff. Uh, and man, the gap is closing value wise, which I think is obviously the biggest knock on using SGC just for everything, right? Well, a, an equal numbered grade in a certain card is always going to sell more in, in PS in a PSA slab. What do you think drives that, by the way? What do you think drives the value difference between PSA and SGC and the vintage side? Yeah. So, well, first of all, so are you a bit, you're a big SGC fan or? I, I'm a fan of SGC. I'm a PSA guy because I am a slave to the registries. <laughs> well, that that's, that that's essentially the answer. So, I mean, the thing is, I don't, I don't see how another company could actually catch PSA that they, they have. A lead that can't be caught and that's the pop report and the, and the set registry like you can't that that data is so valuable uh for collectors you know when they're putting sets together or when they they need to understand how, how rare a card is and the other companies can never catch that like even if they're better you know what i mean that that data is so far ahead i, I don't know what the numbers are but probably there's probably 10 times the pop report is probably 10 times as big for psa than it is sgc yeah. when it comes to vintage it might even be more than 10 so chris that that case right there is we i call it the beast my dad and the i beast. built it and uh, it, it's it, we customized built it for psa slabs yeah uh, it actually doesn't even hold sgc slabs so there's like two in there and they're turned all cockeyed because they won't fit because i made it for psa because i have four thousand psa slabs and i yeah. and i think as a collector you go, okay, I decided long ago when PSA was even more the king of the vintage world that I'm going down that road. The registries are awesome. And the reality is, even though I'm more open-minded today than I have been in the past to, to add some SGC slabs to my collection for different th projects that I'm doing, yeah, it's I want everything to look the same. Isn't that just silly that that's, you know... Not at all. That, 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 that's, that's what a collector is, man. That's <laughs> yeah. 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 So there's that aspect of it. Obviously the registries, not that, you know, you don't get anything for being X, Y, Z on a registry, but the competitive nature of the hobby is, is real. And, and if you deny it, maybe you're just not, you're just the one guy that's not competitive, but it ain't me. Uh, I like seeing where I am in the registry not that I lose any sleep over it, but it's just kind of nice to know where your collection ranks in certain yeah. aspects, right? Uh, the set, the, I mean, I, I don't participate in the set registry, but that's that's because I'm, uh, you know, really really a dealer. But I, I completely get it. Like, and and I think it's it's really the one of the most brilliant things they did ever from a from a business perspective was create the set registry. And yeah, definitely. Compet I mean, I wouldn't call it competitiveness, although I think that's right. I think I think there's just a desire to be able to show other people what you got. Yeah. You know, that's a part of the hobby and that's always going to be a part of the hobby. And the set registries are a, a perfect way to do that. Like, look, I have this incredible 67 set and it's 
you know, it's the, it's the seventh best set in the world. Like, that's awesome to be able to say that. You know? Yeah, I, that's what actually got me into YouTube was the desire to show it off. If it just sits in a dark hole yeah. and you don't share it, I don't have, you know, people all around my neighborhood that love sports cars. <laughs> <No. laughs> right. So I found that neighborhood in the YouTube, you know, atmosphere and the community that's out there. And uh, I love sharing my stuff. That's the whole point. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's to share it. When I think about my million dollar idea, and I've said this a bunch of times before on the show, but if somebody could figure out a way to create a database that's a universal set registry that you could, if you're a collector and you had an SGC slab or a BGS slab or BVG, and if it's vintage or HGA or whoever, right? Yeah. CSG, and, and you could use the same checklist of a, of a certain set, 500 home run hitters or whatever, right? Pick a, pick a right. set you like, and you could use any slab you want and it would calc, you know, put that in there and use that. That would be a genius. You know, if someone could figure out that. That to, would be genius. So I've, I've often said we need a universal pop report, but yeah, universal set registry. Yeah. Or I mean, or perhaps one of the companies would start accepting other the other grading, but that seems pretty unlikely. Highly um, unlikely, right? They're they're yeah. very proud of their. Yeah, their well, it's things. probably not good business to to do it either. So right, but yeah. I agree with the universal pop report too. I've said that before because, it, in fact, if you incorporated both of them, you would have a million dollars. If you could, and yeah. the funny thing is, the data is there now. I mean, SGC has pop reports. How accurate are they? You could argue. Sure. How, how but the data is there if you could build the bot that could go in and do the queries right um you could build i've done it on like acuna okay. and trout i've gone in and looked at each company and built a composite pop report for those yeah. cards unfortunately you also have the deal with grades of you know if psa right. doesn't have a nine five right so or, or is a BVG five equal to a PSA five? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, so there are hurdles to get over for sure to make that really work. I'm not yeah. smart enough to, or have the desire to want to do that. But if somebody wants to take that idea and run with it. It's going to exist. Yeah. yeah it's going to exist. Somebody, somebody's going to, somebody's going to do it. But think about how many people would pay for that. Like, yeah. Yeah. Actually, it, probably, probably PSA wouldn't want it because it, it in theory would hurt them. Because the, what their value is right now is is being so far the leader and exactly what you said. Like everyone wants the uni, uniform, uh, you know, they want to be able to see it on their on that set registry, and that's the, by far the best one. If there was a universal one, that might actually hurt them in theory. Well, it, it's not like you're. It's not like the data is proprietary, right? Yep, so, true. I mean, you wouldn't be infringing on a copyright or yeah, any of that kind of I, stuff. I assume but, that, yeah. But. Uh, Okay, sorry. Back. We, <laughs> I love. I love when I go down little rabbit holes. Yeah, I, no, rabbit holes are awesome. Um, back to vintage. So, you mentioned how you love sitting in front of the TV and, and sorting through a vintage box of, of yeah of raw cards. But are there certain sets that you just love in the vintage era? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, people ask me what's my favorite set. I generally say the '56 tops baseball. Uh, I just think the design's like perfect, but uh, unfortunately, there's no like key rookie in that set. But uh, 
Luis Aparicio. Yeah, Aparicio is the one Hall of Fame rookie. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But there's no, you know, Aaron or Clemente or – but – um, in general, I just, the older, the better. Like I, 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 I love pre-war stuff. You rarely get, I rarely find collections with pre-war stuff in it. Um, but you know, I, the older, the better. So fifties would be next then sixties, seventies. And then, yeah. Are you finding, of, oh, go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. No, just in terms of what, in terms of what, I, if I, if it was up to me, what I would be buying. Yeah. So I get that you're mainly a dealer now. What do you, what do you keep? When you go buy a collection, what kind of stuff in the vintage, if you find a vintage collection or whatever, what do you keep for you? Yeah. So uh, let me, I'll, let me, let me explain that a little more. Cause it, it's, uh, it, it's hard for, I think a lot of people don't understand it, but it, you know, I, I was a collector for so long that I didn't become a dealer. I, I became a dealer because I love collecting. And so my dealing just is my collecting. You know, I have so many cards coming in and out of my possession that I, I don't need to collect. Like, I, if that makes any sense, like I do, I do so much sorting and so much buying and so much selling that I don't need to collect. There's, uh, I will my my personal collection is very very small, uh, quantity wise. Like what I specifically keep, and that is just the uh, the best the best Hall of Fame rookie card uh, that I can that I have. And and so if I ever get a better one, I'll just upgrade it. Um, and it, they're all in PSA holders, uh, a few are in SGC holders. And it's, it's about 80% vintage, 20% modern. And then on top of that, I probably have about 50 cards that are like Cal Ripkins, who was my favorite player growing up. And, and that's really it. My, my PC is like 300 cards. Okay. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I had a person ask me, I did a Q&A show, and someone had asked me if I would ever be into, in cards full-time, like as my job, my occupation. Yeah. And I said, not just no, but hell no. And it's, <laughs> Why not? Uh, I don't ever want cards to be something I like drinking castor oil, you know, yeah. or something. I, I want cards are a hobby to me. Cards are fun to me. Mm-hmm. I never want to introduce an element that might change that perspective that I have on the hobby. And yeah. so, plus I have a really good job now. Why would I, you know, and it's, <laughs> I mean, the idea of selling anything, I, I have sold cards. Usually it's because I have multiples. Like I accidentally buy an extra. Oh, I already had that card. I didn't realize I had it and I buy it and then I resell it. But yeah, the reality is like this Mickey Mantle that I bought at the, I bought a 52 Bowman Mantle at the Dallas oh. show, PSA three, that this is going in the dark hole, man. Like it's not. <laughs> It's not going on the set registry somehow. It's not part of a set registry. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying it's going like it's not. I'm not. I didn't buy this to resell it. I didn't buy yeah, it yeah. to yeah. ultimately get rid of it. It doesn't mean someday I won't. I may have to call you and say, "Hey, come on over." And, uh, <laughs> I'm in, make man. Me, make me an offer. You. I want to see the beast. I want to see the beast. The belly of the beast. <laughs> Do you ever go to the Dallas show? I know you go to a lot of shows. I go to a lot of shows. Most are on the East Coast. I have not been to the Dallas show. I really want to get there. And actually, Jeremy, my partner, lives in Dallas. So I plan on going there. We're actually considering setting up a booth there uh, just mainly to buy. But uh, I really want to go to that because it's, it's the biggest show in the country now besides the national, right? Or yeah. yeah. You could actually argue there's more dealers at the Dallas show than there are at the national. Because the national is bigger, but it's mainly wow. corporate. Okay. Right. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of square footage of the national. It's corporate booths and yeah, Panini and right. Panini and PSA and TriStar. You know the autograph pavilion. 
So no doubt the Nationals much larger, but in terms of number of dealers, I mean, we're talking, there are probably more dealers at the National, but really? it's, getting, it's getting closer. That is, I would not have even contemplated that. That is uh, even more tempting to get out there then. Yeah, there's 600, 700 tables. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody's videos of them scan. I just did my recaps and scanning the room. I mean, it's. I have, but I, I haven't. Not. I, could, I can't picture like an overview of the entire room. The scale is doesn't the any video you see doesn't really do it justice. It's, yeah, and it's yeah. three different room, four rooms. Yeah. Not as big as the main room, but there there's plenty to see. Unfortunately, okay. Chris, you'll find it's not nearly as vintage heavy because it's a relatively new show onto the scene, you know, onto the hobby yeah. scene. Yeah. And it's only three or four years old now. And unfortunately it attracted a lot of new, newer people in the hobby to sure. show at it. Not the, in, on the East coast, man, you got all those dealers that have been doing it for a hundred years and they're, you know, their top loaders are all cloudy and stuff. Cause the case it's been in the case for since 1987 or something, yeah. you know, so, yeah. um, but so you got a lot more vintage on the East coast shows than the Dallas show, but there, I mean, there's some, it, it, no doubt, but it's more well, modern. So have you been, you go to the national? Yeah. 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 So what, how, like com compared to the, like the national to me is an impressive amount of vintage. Now there's plenty of modern and I, by the way, I don't mind modern, but I, I prefer vintage, but would you say it's similar to that in, you know, modern, modern versus vintage breakdown? Nope. No, far more modern, far more modern. It's yeah. it's 80 20 modern versus okay. the national being 80 20 vintage. I would, yeah, argue. yeah. And then the east coast shows I go to are, I'd say, like the national, so okay, that's what I'm, I'm used to. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't go to the Dallas show, it just yeah. I'm trying to give some realistic expectations for you <laughs> yeah. so, so that sure. you're not disappointed, but uh, it, it's just a fun experience. I mean, any show is fun, right? Like, I yeah, of course. Who doesn't love going to a card show? Right. And uh, I find I found that dealers are are were willing to deal for sure. It was super crowded, um, which is good. I mean, it, it talks about the health of the hobby. I saw a lot of guys selling like with their Pelican case, the Pelican case dudes. Yeah. Um, walking around. Are you buying? Are you buying? Are you buying? You know, talking to dealers. Are you so? If if that's your thing, Chris, you'll you'll be in heaven there because you'll have a litany <laughs> of people walking up to you asking if you're buying cards. Well, and that, that's something we, we're considering. I mean, yeah, I, I, when I go to shows, I'm strictly a buyer, which is seems sort of seems sort of strange as a dealer to be a buyer at shows. But I mean, like, did you get a decent, I mean, did you get, you know, fair price on the mantle or are you, are, are you overpaying? Are you underpaying? Are you paying? Fair? I paid fair for it. I think yeah. it's a, it's a nice, version of that grade a, a yeah. nice example so i paid a fair price for it but yeah. i didn't have to pay ebay taxes and fees and of course or, you know whatever i i got the card for cash so no shipping no obviously <laughs> no shipping yes yeah but other than the gas to get me to the show but yeah. you bring up so if you're and what but what's funny is these pelican case this pelican case crew that's running around there Unfortunately, you'll probably see a lot of Zion and Trey Young, and you're gonna yeah. they're gonna go. Hey, I want to sell you all this crap that I don't want anymore. Herberts and you know, you, you no one's gonna walk up to you and go, Hey, are you buying? I've got a run of 
Hank Aaron cards that I'd love to sell, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, well, yeah, that, that's exactly like that, that's hard for newer people to understand. Like I'll pay much stronger on a vintage card than a modern card, not even because I prefer vintage, which I do, but that's not the reason. The reason is because the vintage card is, isn't going to drop. Like it's going to hold its value. It'll trickle up. You know, I know what it's going to sell for today. I know what it's going to sell for in a few, a few weeks. There's no, yep. no gamble there. It with, with a, with a Trey young, I mean, he could get hurt tomorrow and the card's nothing. And I just don't want that downside. So or, or not that I don't want it. You have to protect yourself from that downside. So you have to pay a lot, a lot less percentage wise on, uh, on the modern stuff. You are such a wise man, Chris. I, I, <laughs> I say vintage baseball, vintage in general, not, not necessarily yeah. just baseball, but primarily baseball is the tortoise and modern is the hare. Yeah. And I've read Aesop's fable. I know who wins the race at the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, history has shown that vintage is, 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 I mean, even from before you and I are, you know, it goes back many decades. Vintage is the, the slow, steady upward trend and, and modern is doing this with an ultimate downward trend. Yeah. Cause 95% of the prospects in your, that you're buying for modern cards will end up being nobodies. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's the issue. And they go from being worth something to zero. One of my buddies bought a Glaber Torres 2018 tops, uh, the short print base card. Yeah. $2 for a PSA nine, $2. Yeah. $2. <laughs> right. Right. Amazing. It's like, I mean, that's one fiftieth of the PSA grading fee. <laughs> right. And you're like, wait a second. Uh, so I definitely agree that vintage, you know, and I, people that listen to this show know how I feel about it. Obviously I, I love the vintage stuff and I, I, I bought a Acuna rookie Chrome this weekend. Yeah. I bought uh, a Mookie Betts rookie this weekend. So it's, it's not like I don't enjoy being, but I'm much more tactical with my modern purchases. Um, yeah, yeah. I like Soto. I've got several of his key cards, rookie cards, several of his autographs. Do you do autographs at all or are you just cards only? Uh, you mean like memorabilia autographs? Um, more like like on card stuff or uh, well, if it's a, like, if it's a pack if it's a pack inserted auto, I'll, uh, you know, modern, I'll, I'll definitely do that. I, I, don't, I basically don't do anything with memorabilia or in person autos. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if it was in like a, if it was like a, a vintage, you know, Stan Musial, a 1960s Stan Musial autograph, then it was in a PSA DNA holder, then definitely. Sure. Of course. But uh, no, otherwise, not not really. Well, I'd love to hear some stories about some, you know, a vintage find that you had that you were super surprised about or that kind of caught you off guard or kind of your best, um, your best story from a vintage purchase. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'll be I, well, off the top of my head. I don't, I don't know if this would be the best. And I, I did a video about this, but um, I bought a, I bought a collection. With, it was actually with, with Jeremy and it looked like it was going to end up being a bust. Um, but there was this stack of 64 tops giants and you, you know, those, and oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. there were 400 of them in the stack and we paid $400 for the stack. Cause they were, they're a dollar a piece and they, they were all commons. There, there were like a couple Killebrews and uh, there, there, none of the big cards, no Mantle, Koufax, Clemente, but there was a couple like Killebrews, maybe a Brooks Robinson or two, but they were almost all common. So I paid a dollar a piece and 
they were they looked really nice when when we bought them. So I didn't I didn't think anything of them because it was a much bigger deal we were buying, and this was just like a sort of a throw-in thing. Right. And um, I can't remember why, but for for whatever reason, the deal just was not panning out, and it, it looked like we were going to take a loss on it. Um, oh yeah, because we we had placed a really expensive newspaper ad, and we weren't even going to like recover that um from from the buys that we were making but it, then then at some point i noticed that the stack these were not like high grade they were like ultra high grade like pack fresh perfect and uh i started researching them and like the commons in nines and tens big money so i i, I, I sent in something like 250 of them to psa this was back when psa was 10 bucks or you know probably like eight bucks a card in in bulk service and yeah, we made an absolute killing off of that. That was a, a a totally lucky, lucky, unexpected find. I think I think one of the one of the cards in like a nine sold for like fifteen hundred dollars, or maybe maybe it was a ten. I can't can't remember. The specific. How many tens did you get out of that lot? Something like like twenty, and oh and goodness. and but a lot of them weren't weren't actually that valuable. But there were a couple that were like pop threes, and they were like four figure cards. Right. Uh, this was probably five years ago, so. And probably worth more than that today. And yeah, well, I'm sure they're worth you know a bucket load more than that today. We'll get back to. I want to ask you some more questions later about buying collections and maybe some tips for people if they do that. But yeah, do you? Well, I'll just ask you now, I guess, because I forgot what my other question was. <laughs> that's the thing about doing this off the cuff is you. I, so, I love it. <laughs> that's why I have a, a notepad to keep notes. But nice. Um, when you go by these collections and you're, you're assessing, I know you've talked about putting the ads in the paper and you'll just go to a hotel and, and set up shop basically and, and kind of spider your way around the area that you're in. Yeah. What tips would you give to somebody as they're, as they're hunting through vintage collections and trying to decide, do I want to make an offer? How do you price it? Do you, do you do it really quick? Do you, I know a lot of times you talk about taking time, to go back and kind of think through what was there and take a bunch of pictures and bring all that back with you and kind of um, figure that out. And then I'm going to stop my camera first. You can keep talking, answer that question, but I got to sneeze real quick. Hold on. <laughs> okay, sure. um, well, so I'll, should, I, should I hold off for you? Oh, okay. No, you could have kept going. I just oh, had sorry. to. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, well, so in terms of like assessing a collection, a large collection, that's that's just just a function of experience. Like I, a lot of people ask, how do you do that? And it's just it's just the, the more you do it, the quicker you get and the better you get. I don't think there's more to it than that. Um, I, there's certainly not like a magic formula I can say, you know, it's just it's just the more you do it, the better you get. Like when I first did it, it took me forever to assess a, a three row box of 60s commons. Now I could do it like like that, you know. And be and be very very close to to accurate most of the time. Um, I would say that sort of like the most important thing when you're buying a collection is just to to make you know have, make a relationship with the person. Like you, you know that's a personal collection they have. Maybe they really care about it. Maybe it was their dad's, and you know, and and then care about that part <laughs> and then and then everything will be a lot easier if you just sort of make a real connection as opposed to going in with this mindset of okay okay i gotta get this for the best price i can now going with uh, like hey let's find let's find a win-win situation here 
uh, make sure you know he understands he or she understands what's going on, and and, and that, I think that's actually more important than uh, than you know what the specific cards are it, when when you're trying to you know make deals. I, I just think it's it works out better that way. I, I've actually found that to be 100% true. Also, when you're buying cards at a show from another dealer, if you definitely, definitely. if you when, can say why you love that card or why it matters, where it's going in your PC or whatever they're a lot more apt to deal with you. It's right. Right. Absolutely. And and, in all aspects. And yeah. And I mean, most, most, most of the time I buy at a show is now I'm buying from a dealer I've already known and I've already dealt with. And we had a conversation a few years ago and he remembers me and it was cool and cool. You know, he'll give me a good price. That's how, that's how the hobby works. Are you going to the national this year? Definitely, definitely. Atlantic City. So, I, I mean, uh, my parents live in like the D.C. area. So that's that's whenever I get a chance, I, I visit them. And, and so that's that's perfect. So you're going to make a whole kind of trip out of it and come home for a few weeks or something like that? Yeah, well, I'm actually I'm actually considering spending like a lot of the, like months of the summer in the States because I want to I want to go to more than one show <laughs> to be honest. I want to bounce around to a few shows. I got a, a bunch of, you know, collections I want to look at on the East coast and um, trying to work that out with, with family, obviously. And I have, I have a six year old, so he's in school. So. Well, there's a Dallas show in July, ironically. Yeah. Well, that, that we're actually target. That's the one we're sort of targeting. Okay. Yeah. Which is weird. Why would they, it, it's funny that it, it feels like, big auction houses and, and shows, they don't look at the hobby calendar. They're like, we're going to do what we do and damn the rest of it. And it's like they all run auctions at the big auction houses run tend to run auctions around the same time and the national and their shows right before, right after. And I'm like, do you guys not know most of the hobby money is like to, the national. to me, there's so many, there's only so much hobby money out there. Yeah. It, um, it's not unlimited. And if you dilute that by putting too many things all at once or close by each other, you're only hurting yourself. Like I would, I would look, if I was an auction house, I'd go, when is no one else doing an auction? That's when I'm going to do an auction. Yeah. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. It's a, it's a good point. Well, the Dallas show is two weeks before the national. Uh, yeah. Well, that, 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 so that would be perfect because, because if I came, let's, you know, if I was thinking of coming for a month or two, that would, the window would include both of those. Which is great for you, but I get, but I would go. Why would you do the oh. Dallas show two weeks before the national? You see what I mean? Like, I see, I see, I see. Yeah, I guess. I mean, two weeks. Yeah, I don't know. I guess the Dallas show is every two months, right? Yeah. And then is is there another one every month? There's a no kind of in the off months they might do a Fort Worth show, like a within the Metroplex Dallas Fort Worth. Uh, yeah, they'll run another smaller show, much much smaller. Okay. Have you been to the smaller one? Mm -hmm. Are they good as well? Or I mean, it's okay. Yeah. Um, it's more like the shows that you're used to seeing in a hotel lobby or, or I mean, in a hotel conference room or whatever. Yeah. Uh, banquet room. But yeah, it, I just go, I mean, within two weeks of the Dallas show and the national, most people won't even get another paycheck, much less you know, it's true. <laughs> have, have had time to save up money for that. And yeah, if I had yeah. to choose, good point. like if I had to choose, I'm going to go, I'm going, going to I'm, I'm going to the national. Or, or most people are going to choose the national. I would assume. Of course. Now, yeah. 
there's a small sliver of the hobby that can't go to the national, but we'll go yeah. to the Dallas show for sure. Right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying there won't be anybody there or, or dealers there or whatnot, but to me, you're still diluting that, right. You're diluting your opportunity instead of. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, I imagine the Dallas show, you know, uh, promoters are just like, we're going to do this every two months period, but yeah, it would be something to consider. Like, why not move that one up a few weeks or something? Yeah. Uh, Kyle is his name, the promoter of the show. Uh, yeah. Good guy for sure. But I don't know. I, some of these people, they just get into these tunnel vision of how they do things. And I don't know, yeah. not for me to decide, yeah. but uh, if you come to the Dallas show in July, I'd, I gotta, I gotta have you over and, and oh, definitely, man. show you around. You Thanks on me. Drinks on you. There you go. <laughs> the sad thing is I'm not really like the Dallas show. Dallas Fort Worth is huge. Right. And yeah. where I live and where the Dallas show is, it's like the others. It's like, you might as well go to the moon. You know, oh, it's, it's like an hour drive or, or yeah. More. yeah. Yeah. It's an hour, That's, but okay. which isn't like the end of the world, but uh, yeah. And there's some good shops around here. Do you ever go to card shops when you're here? Uh, there's, well, I, I wish there were more, I mean, there's none in, there's none in Europe, but when I'm there, uh, there's one in, uh, Maryland I go to every, every, every time. Um, I know the guys there well, and they, they have, it's Huggins and Scott auctions. I don't know if you know. know oh yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. They have, they have a card shop in, uh, in Maryland. Okay. I didn't know they had a shop. That's so cool. Yeah. It's it, the, yeah, it, yeah. It's a shop and they sort of run the auction house out of the back of the shop. Gotcha. I've bought many times from Huggins and Scott auctions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm a fan of theirs. I, I've been selling selling a couple of things through them, um, but I, I'll, I go in there to buy usually. Yeah, I I found auction houses to be where I find my best deals. Yeah, because yeah. they're much less observed and followed than eBay, for example. And yeah. So there's just less comp bidding competition, quite frankly. Yeah. I, and do you buy lots on auction houses? I try to because yeah. I can get on a per item basis, super cheap stuff. Um, yeah. I found that it, it's funny. The lots are decreased. I, I find that auction houses are getting smarter about listings. And so they're doing fewer of those lots. I remember buying a lot of 70s sets from 73 to like 78 tops. Mm -hmm. They sets for reasonably inexpensive like super cheap relatively yeah me buying them individually right and i'm trying to do that again but it's harder to find yeah, that's what i was gonna say that this that sort of thing that i think often goes for like very very cheap at an auction house it's the 70 yeah 70 set run right yeah <laughs> And they'll, set run. Yeah. yeah, you'll find that stuff. It's still a 70 set run, right? And yeah, of course. Of course. Obviously, you don't get to look at the stuff or any of that, but it's I found them all. I've never had a bad experience with an auction house, and I've dealt with I don't know, eight or ten of them over the years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I think the I think the hobby's gonna move towards that more. Uh I mean not not hugely, but away from eBay and towards uh you know individual uh sites where you can buy and, and sell that way well now that ebay is doing this you know pre-authentication crap that you have to send a card through you're gonna see i, I again i agree i totally agree with you by the way Gra a gravitation towards alternate selling platforms yeah. for higher end vintage anything over you know they're about to move it to 250 bucks probably within the next couple of weeks yeah. um, 
my partner Ty, uh, he thinks that my bench clear partner didn't want that mm-hmm. to sound weird. But, <laughs> no, I understood. <laughs> uh, Ty thinks that they'll abandon that entire idea by the national. Oh, eBay will. Yeah. Interesting. How come that's uh, I hadn't heard that. Well, there's been a lot of cards coming to people that are halfway out of the holder. I saw the the Griffey's the same. I saw the Griffey on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just crazy stuff. Yeah. And cards that are literally pack pulled that come back as, you know, they get the transaction gets rejected because it wasn't described properly or whatever. Right. So Ty thinks there's going to be a lot more pain with that for eBay than they're willing to to deal with and especially if they start charging like right now it's free you know it's like crack cocaine the first taste is free so they're they're doing it now for free to get people used to this and indoctrinated into the system to then add that as a layer of hey look we're going to do this it's awesome this is their thinking we're going to now charge xyz per listing for that yeah um which will be a disaster also so people, I agree with you. People will gravitate towards other alternative options. And, and, and by the way, that's kind of already happened, right? I mean, you, most, you know, there's a lot more high-end cards being sold at Golden and, and Heritage and PWCC and you know Mile High and all these other versus eBay now nowadays. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I would guess. Yeah, and that's a, I think that's good for the. I mean, it's good to have multiple places you can find stuff, right? If it's if it's only that's one. Good. Uh, no yeah, I mean, yeah, eBay was a little too strong for the, <laughs> for me. Like, I wish it was a little more diversified. <laughs> yeah, it it makes it harder as a buyer because you have to go hunt more. But the hunt's the joy of it. I think I I enjoy yeah. looking under the rocks and trying to find the the hidden gems somewhere that nobody else is seeing. Right? That's yeah. that's part of the joy of the hobby for me and probably most collectors. But uh, yeah, man, what a great conversation, Chris. I I am sad that we had not met before i obviously been following you for a while and have wanted to meet you and talk to you for those of you guys that don't know chris and i have been emailing back and forth for i don't know a couple months trying to get this on the books on the (laughs) calendar but well worth the wait um any final thoughts about vintage you want to throw out there or anything uh no, nothing off the top of my head but yeah thanks so much for having me on really cool really cool to uh to meet you and, and come on yeah um his YouTube channel is baseball card collector, investor, dealer. And I will, you might get two subs out of this because, you know, <laughs> anybody that watches my channel probably watches your channel. And oh, so, cool. well, not going to be a huge Hello, promotion. everybody watching. There you go. And listening on the podcast. And listening. Right? Yeah, so, right. Of course. Of course. Well, thanks again for being on the show, Chris. And, yeah. uh, man, great discussion. We'll have you back soon. And uh, I, I look forward to seeing you in Dallas, hopefully, in a few months. Like I said, first drinks on uh, on me. All right. We'll talk to you guys later. Keep collecting.